Today in the garage, we have Neha Chug and Paulo Giancaterino. Neha Chug is a criminal lawyer practicing in the East region of Ontario. Neha started Chug Law in 2014 for a love of criminal law, working with individuals and families, serving the vulnerable population, and working with the community members in Cornwall, Ontario. She is passionate about being a lawyer and serving her clientele to make a better community for all of us. She is an advocate, a manager, a mother, a student, and a community member. Neha also serves as a prosecutor in the Aquasasni Court, assists with the Provincial Offences Prosecution with the City of Cornwall, and is an instructor at the Aquasasni Education Training Institute. Neha was appointed as the Law Foundation of Ontario's representative on the Board of Governors of the Law Commission of Ontario. Neha serves as the chair of the board of the Centre York Centre Supervised Access Facility in Cornwall, on the Community Editorial Board of the Cornwall Standard Freeholder, and on the Board of Directors of Curia Current, an organization founded to address systemic racism in local institutions. Paulo Giancaterino is a criminal trial and appeal lawyer practicing exclusively in Ontario's East Region. Paulo is a partner with LMS Lawyers LLP, where he joined the firm as an associate in 2007. During that time, Paulo has developed a busy law practice where he prides himself on fostering trust with his clients in handling their everyday legal issues. Paulo has appeared before all levels of court in Ontario. He has been the past secretary for the Defence Council Association of Ottawa. He is a regular speaker at a number of legal conferences and seminars, and is also an instructor with the Department of Laws at Carleton University. In today's garage, Paulo and Nea tell us about some colorful defenses, the importance of remand court, and the collegiality of the criminal bar in Eastern Ontario. Whether you're driving your Honda CRV, strumming on your Peerless, or prepping a motion, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune. Neha and Paulo, I'd like to thank you both uh, for joining us here in the garage today. Thanks for having me, Marco. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have um, members of the East Region of Ontario join us because I know that Justice Cooper uh, really wanted to expand this podcast to include members of the bar, both uh, in Ontario as well as across Canada. And many of the guests for season two have come from outside of the local uh, Toronto bar, which is really good. So I'm really happy to have both of you here to tell us about your experiences. Um, Paulo, you and I, we met basically on the first day of law school. We did. We did. That was a uh, an eventful day, as I remember. I just, I remember because... I was wearing a Le Chateau shirt. <laughs> I just remember when I saw Paulo for the first time, I said, this guy, he has to be uh, an Italian. And, you know, when you're in law school on that first day and you're trying to make friends and you're trying to, you know, find somebody that you can get along with, um, you know, you just kind of, you know, we, we hit it off right away. And then for the rest of the three years, we had to endure the Marco, Paulo, every time somebody was looking for us, which got annoying by the end, but it was fun nonetheless. And I understand that, uh, Paulo, working in the East Region, you're primarily out of Ottawa, but you know Neha because you do some work in Cornwall. I do, actually. I met uh, I met Neha um, in Ottawa, I think, first of all, when you were practicing in Ottawa, Neha. And then um, we hit it off. And um, that's the really good thing about the Eastern Bar, I think, is that we, we get to know each other because we get to see a lot of each other. I know in Toronto, it's a little bit more uh, dispersed, but... Even when you go to other jurisdictions, I mean, they're they're quite welcoming to uh, all lawyers. And so I see Nea when I go to Cornwall and she welcomes me. And 
when she comes to Ottawa, I, I, I put out the same welcome mat. Neha, is your practice uh, primarily focused in Cornwall or are you across the East region? So I started in Ottawa. My first two years were in Ottawa and then I moved out to Cornwall. I uh, am what you call a trailing spouse. So I went to law school in Toronto. I articled in Toronto and then my husband's job uh, took us first to Ottawa for two years and then to Montreal. And then I kind of looked around and I said, well, I'm not going to write the barrow in Quebec because I don't speak a word of French. And uh, we had a two-year-old and I was pregnant with our second. So learning French was not in the cards for me at that time in my life. And I saw Cornwall. Um, I had a few clients in Cornwall and I thought it might be a good place to smart start a small, uh, just a small practice that I could sustain with having two small children at home. Uh, little did I know that it was going to turn into what it did. Um, we're now five lawyers in Cornwall. Staff, uh, we own our building, um, and we have quite a significant presence uh, in the bar in Cornwall. Um, and we, have, we do have clients in Brockville, Ottawa, um, Lorignal, which uh, in French means the moose, uh, and is close to Hawkesbury. Uh, and uh, we, we have clients, uh, as a result of the pandemic, we've taken a few clients in Toronto, uh, but I don't know how sustainable that is for us uh, post-pandemic. So I just want to pick up on something that you, you indicated there. When you started your practice in Cornwall, you had one child already and you were expecting another? Yeah, so um, we moved to Montreal and I was uh, pregnant when we moved. I was about six months pregnant with our daughter, who's now seven, going on 27. Um, and uh, we had a two-year-old as well. I was pregnant during my articles. So my articles actually ended with me calling in and saying, uh, I'm not coming in today because I'm having a baby. I don't know if you noticed. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, we noticed. And uh, uh, let me... Uh, and at that point, do you um, do you feel comfortable telling us who your articling principles were that were so kind oh, and absolutely. gracious to you? Absolutely. They're wonderful. They're a wonderful group of uh, lawyers. Uh, David Berg, who's now Justice David Berg in Ottawa and Gerald Logan, who is uh, still a lawyer in Toronto. I hope he's still a lawyer. Um, he's a wonderful guy. Still checks in with me regularly. Um and uh, it was the cast of characters over at 317 Grace Street. Um, John Fitzmorris, Chris Essier, um, Alan Lobel was there. I'm not sure if he still is, but it was a, it was a great group. And I uh, had great mentorship and great support uh, all throughout my articles and my pregnancy, my first pregnancy. Well, that's good because, I mean, starting a practice with, well, starting a law, as a lawyer with a newborn baby's got to be really uh, difficult. Did you go straight into practice or did you have to take some time off or what did you do? So I took some time off naturally because we were moving to Ottawa. My husband was starting his postdoc at Carleton University after finishing his PhD. And so we moved to Ottawa and just for that transition, I had to take some time off. I took about nine weeks with my, um, my first. I was hired by Terry Houghton and Peter Dotsikas to uh, take care of their Ottawa clientele. And uh, they really took a risk on me. I'm, I'm the person who went to a, my first job interview at nine months pregnant. 
and just blasted through it and uh, got the job in Ottawa. They took, they took a risk on me. Um, I think one of the advantages that I have as a lawyer is that I've never been a lawyer without having kids. So for me, it's just the reality of lawyering. Um, I've never known uh, the opposite. And so it's an advantage for me because um, I've never had to find balance because I've always, I've always had to make the balance. It's just that reality. That's a great point because a lot of our listeners are new members to the bar who might have uh, find themselves in predicaments or personal circumstances that may make it seem difficult to get a start in this profession. So it's it's great to have um, somebody who's been through, you know, a very, I, I don't want to use the word difficult, but in a very important time in their lives in terms of having a child, articling, being pregnant during articles, and then starting your practice both with a new baby coming your second coming forward as a when you're starting your practice it's important to have these stories out there in, in my opinion because it gives people um an understanding that you know not all of us have had the, the privileged existence of just going to school graduating articling working job etc like paulo paulo <laughs> tell us about your start well, well uh luckily i i had the maturity level of a newborn and the energy too. Uh, so uh, I was uh, born and raised in St. Catharines. And uh, like you said in the intro, I came to Ottawa U, um, which was big city to me. I know for a Torontonian, it seemed a little bit like a downgrade, but um, really enjoyed uh, the city, really enjoyed the people. I started with uh, a firm that was called uh, Langevin Morris at the time. And then uh, that was my articles. And then uh, uh, became Langevin Morris Smith, and then uh, subsequently LMS Lawyers, and uh, I've been there literally since uh, since my articles, and I've uh, I've grown with them. Um, you know, I I I, uh, I didn't go through the the same um, uh, tribulations, if I could put it that way, as Naya in terms of uh, developing her practice uh, with uh, young children in tow. Um, I've only recently experienced having to practice uh, law with a uh, young child, and. Uh, that was uh, especially um, uh, difficult during the pandemic, obviously, because my wife is uh, works in healthcare, and I was stuck at uh, home uh, for about six months with with my kid and uh, trying to run a practice. At that time, I could only imagine, uh, you know, uh, what what Naya and others in the bar have gone through in terms of um, uh, having a family at the same time that you're trying to start a practice. So uh, it's obviously commendable and uh, a really important message for others that uh, you know it can be done. Naya. Uh, just to follow up on Paulo's point there regarding the pandemic, how's the pandemic impacted on your ability to practice uh, given your personal circumstances? So the first two months of the pandemic, I don't think that I would actually call what I was doing practicing. Um, it was more delegating. Um, I'm lucky enough to have staff, to have associates who work for me Um I, you know, I'm young, I'm in my late 30s, uh, but I could not figure out the phone bail system, um, nor did I have the patience for it with, um, at the time, uh, an 11-month-old at home and two elementary school children at home. Um, finding a quiet place in my house uh, was, uh, um, it was hard to come by. Uh, a lot of bail hearings and pleas were done in my car on the driveway. Um, 
and uh, a lot of them were done driving around my own neighborhood uh, just to be able to find a quiet piece of real estate uh, to have five minutes with my clients. But I have to say that having that five or 10 minutes in court was a saving grace. It was uh, serenity. It was uh, sanity compared to what was going on in this house. Um, and when the weather uh, got better, um, so March was difficult. April was difficult. When the weather got better in the summer and we were just able to push the kids out the door, then we were able to have more um, time invested into both of our careers, my spouse and I. But uh, um, it was it was chaos. <laughs> well, I noticed through the pandemic that um, many people are appearing in court from from their cars. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've, you've seen. I don't think that it would be unfair to say that there are people who just need a, a quiet space to, to talk. And sometimes the car is that, that environment. So it's becoming almost common to see people in awkward spaces conducting trial or court matters. I've been commuting to work since I started in Cornwall in 2014 and the commute is about 45 minutes to an hour depending on the traffic from Montreal but I really value that time because I need that time to get my head in my headspace for work um, and then to unwind after a day and in that in that one hour I'm able to get my phone calls done um, you know plan for dinner uh, leave the office at the office and come home and be fresh for my kids. So I think that uh, it's a great way now to capitalize on that uh, one hour that we've, or that extra time that we have in our cars. Yes. And Paul, Paulo, you do a lot of driving as well. You're not just in Ottawa. Right. Um, yeah. I, I have a practice that goes around Eastern Ontario. So Ottawa, Perth, uh, Pembroke, uh, Renfrew, uh, Lorignal, Cornwall, and, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, yeah, there was a lot of driving, right? And we're talking places that are anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour and 45 minutes away. And uh, I think one of the one of the advantages of the, of the pandemic is that, uh, you know, I've been able to conduct uh, trials and, and bail uh, hearings and, and pleas by way of teleconference. And now I'm saving that time, <clears throat> not having to, to drive. But the flip side is the bureaucracy now behind setting things up and, uh, you know, having to do everything electronically and the steps that have to be taken, I think has, has really ate up a lot of that free time that I would have had in the car. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much, uh, it's pretty much a wash, but uh, I, I do enjoy the, the convenience of it. How much of it has, how much has the pandemic demonstrated to you, Paulo, um, how important it is to, have a criminal law be a face-to-face -face business? Oh, I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, I, I, I keep saying that one of the disadvantages that people who or lawyers that are just starting in the pandemic era uh, are going to have is not having that face-to-face -face time with people in the criminal justice system. I can tell you uh, that when I started in the practice of criminal law, one of the greatest advantages was going to court and, you know, Ottawa had, uh, you know, it was a one-stop shop. You have the Ontario Court of Justice, your Superior Court of Justice there. All the crowns are there. All the defense lawyers practice out of there. The biggest advantage was going there, doing some remands, then sitting down, grabbing a coffee and talking to lawyers. 
talking to more ex experienced lawyers and senior lawyers about what's going on, what's happening. And you hear the war stories and you get an idea of, you know, what goes on in a practice, which is a huge advantage. Neha, what, what's your perspective on this issue? So I, I work in a small town. Well, it's the second largest region outside of Ottawa, but it has that small town feel. And I have to say that I'm lucky that we have one of the warmest benches um, that I've uh, ever encountered. Um, the four Ontario court judges and the three um, Superior Court criminal judges are uh, very kind. Um, they are funny, um, smart. Um, I feel for young lawyers who are coming in and meeting them over Zoom and can't see their faces, can't see their their reactions, can't see their smiles, um, can't see their um, uh, looks of recognition. Um, there's so much that we can gain by watching our judges um, in a hearing. If you are watching your judge and you know um, what uh, they are um, kind of where they're kind of leaning or what they're kind of um, uh, thinking just by their reactions, then uh, it's it's a great way to develop as a young lawyer. Um, same thing on the flip side. I wish that young lawyers would turn their zooms on, turn their videos on. Um, I see a lot of young lawyers who don't have their Zooms on, and uh, um, I want to be able to meet them in real life one day and say, hey, I saw you on the Zoom that one day, um, and I look forward to that day. So um, it's a great way to uh, um, meet counsel. And I agree with Paulo. I, I miss that about Ottawa. I miss the Tim Hortons. Um, I miss the camaraderie. Um, I still go back to Ottawa sometimes, and I'll sit in the Tim Hortons, and I'm like a, a visitor from afar. I'm always treated with... Uh, um, the red carpet treatment when I go, um, someone's always buying me a donut. And I, I really appreciate that. Well, part of the reason why um, season two of the garage series of the law garage is these discussions between colleagues are of a less formal nature, because I think that this is something that we need to get back to because the pandemic has really sucked it out of us and we don't have those opportunities to do this. And so I've tried to say, let's put aside the formal CLE for this season and let's just try to get back to telling a few of these stories to one another. So, Paul, I'm going to turn to you. Tell me about, um, tell me about uh, the craziest defense that you've ever run. <laughs> I'm sure some of the listeners in Ottawa who I know are going to be laughing because I think uh, every defense I run is pretty crazy. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> I think that the, one of the craziest defenses I've ever had to run was in, and, and again, I'm, I don't mean to make light of it, but in a, in a, in a trial involving uh, <clears throat> a, a sexual assault where um, uh, the... Uh, let me put it this way. There was revenge that was taken upon another person because they had uh, an extra, uh, they had a, a, a relationship or an affair with another person. And so uh, this client uh, got jealous and uh, ended up um, breaking into her house and uh, 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 applying a, um, a hair remover onto the person. And uh, the person's, my client's defense was that she was, uh, that she had gotten her consent to do it. And the consent was based on 
the three of them having a threesome once this was all said and done. And <laughs> it's <laughs> suffice to say it didn't really fly as it shouldn't have probably. And uh, in any event, I, th I think that's probably the, the craziest uh, defense I've had to run. Sometimes you're, you're stuck with uh, what's given to you. <laughs> and I wasn't given a lot. I, I, I think I forgot to mention that everything was video recorded and uh, that really, uh, <clears throat> that really limited my ability to uh, defend my client. But uh, I mean, you know, as defense lawyers, that's what we do. And, uh, and, and I did it. And <laughs> the, you know, the, the addition of video cameras to the practice of criminal defense has made things is, very difficult. It is, it is <laughs> unbelievable. We had a hard enough time convincing our clients not to talk to the police, you know, when they get arrested and now everything is put on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, everything is recorded and, uh, is memorialized for the trier fact to see and, uh, you know, make their decision. Everything's crystal clear now too. That's what I've noticed is that HD technology is, uh, you know, really, really putting us behind the eight ball, if I could put it that way. What makes the fact finding process a little easier? <laughs> um, Neha, how about you? Do you have any cr crazy defense stories you want to share? I had one similar to Polo's, um, but it that, wasn't that, terrible. That scares me. A, that scares me. It's a thing in Eastern Ontario. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> but go ahead. Go ahead. But it wasn't with hair remover cream, and I was successful. Um, <laughs> Good. But, uh, so I wouldn't call it a crazy defense. I'd call it an amazing offense. But uh, um, I, uh, um, I think the the one where I had to, uh, I, I couldn't make eye contact with the judge when I was making my. Um, final submissions was it was a fail to appear trial and my client said he couldn't come to court because uh, he had had a bad batch of Mr. Noodles. Um, he had bought them on sale and uh, just wasn't, hadn't sat well in his stomach and uh, um, he went into depth about the Mr. Noodles um, and my closing uh, um, submissions had a lot to do with Mr. Noodle and about the preparation of Mr. Noodle and how Mr. Noodle can go bad. Anyways, I was successful. I won. And uh, um, client was happy. And uh, it was a great day in court for all. I want you to take your mind back to one of the first times you went into court, Neha. Did anything, tell us about any memories or experiences you had in those early days that stuck with you? I just remember how fast my heart was beating. It was... It was a remand court in Guelph, Ontario. Um, I was appearing, it was my first year, first summer, so after my first year of law school, and I was appearing on behalf of counsel. And I was uh, so nervous and arrogant at the same time. I thought, um, because I grew up in Guelph, I thought that I had a right to be there, um, but I had no right to be there. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had a script prepared for me by counsel and uh, I stuck to the script. But if you ask me what I said that day or what I accomplished, I don't think that uh, I could recount that for you now. And I don't think I knew what I was doing at that time. Um, but it was, uh, I left that courtroom and I thought to myself, this is what I want to do and this is where I want to be for my life. And as I understand it, you, you have a particular affinity still for Remand Court. I love Remand Court. Remand Court is the Tim Hortons of Cornwall. 
It uh, is where we all congregate. It uh, is where I meet all my colleagues and friends from Cornwall. Um, it never ceases to entertain. Um, and uh, in Cornwall, we have some we have some jokers. I think that Paula would agree that we have some. <laughs> see him raising his eyebrows. We have some jokers in Cornwall, and uh, we have some um, older members of the bar who are getting to know the Zoom infrastructure, um, and it just makes my day. Is there a concern that um, the concept of remand court, at least in person, is going to be uh, a thing of the past post-pandemic? So, for me, it's a big concern because uh, rural rural internet is spotty and is a problem. And there's something to be said about that face-to-face -face contact with duty counsel, with a justice of the peace at your first appearance, walking across the hall and getting your disclosure. I, I think that the concept that everyone has access to an email account, I think that's a very Toronto-centric uh, uh, concept. Uh, we are on our way there but uh, we have access to justice gaps when it comes to uh, the provision of internet services in uh, eastern rural Ontario. I, I think from, if I could just yeah, add, I mean, from a practitioner standpoint, I know when I first started that I loved going to remand court. Loved going to remand court because you'd actually be going to court, you'd be saying something, you'd be doing something, you know, you have confidence, you project confidence, you're doing, you're doing a five second appearance, but you, you're, you're doing it confidently. And, and people who are there, uh, clients or potential clients notice that. And I can tell you that I've gotten countless clients going into remand court, doing a remand, either, you know, putting something on the record in a, in a very, strongly worded way or going against the crown and then walking out of the courtroom and all of a sudden, you know, a person follows me and say, Hey, I'm looking for a lawyer. Do you want to be my lawyer? That's right? a, an early form of advocacy in the process. A absolutely. And I think that is going to be missed. I mean, that is going to be, you know, um, that is going to be something that I, I, I really want them to go back to, to having in-person appearances, because I think it's important for younger lawyers. And I think it's important for for, for people who are accused of criminal offenses to be able to see their lawyer or somebody that they want to be their lawyer in, in court and doing that form of advocacy, regardless of how inconsequential it may appear to us, right? Who do trials, who do jury trials and stuff like that. Like remand is important and people like to see their lawyers fighting for them. And I think that's going to be something that is missed in Zoom court. I... I always think back to, I, I never set foot in court before I started articling. And so the first time I went into a remand court, I was nervous. I was concerned that I was not going to say what I had to say. And so I agree with Paulo that when you're in there, by the end of your articles, it's you take on remand court becomes like your project as an articling student. And it's like, I am not going to blow an 11B protection of the record. I'm not going to get a client bench warranted. I'm not, you're going to do all these things because remand court becomes your baby. And it's where you learn your first stages of advocacy. And as I sit and watch it on Zoom, um, despite it being very convenient to do it from home or from wherever we are in our offices, I find that it's less formal. 
um, I find that it's becoming just more of an administrative atten attendance and the formality f is going by the wayside. Do you agree? Yeah, or? absolutely. I mean, you have, you know, you have people who are there not wearing shirts, not lawyers, but clients, you know, people who are smoking on screen, people who are interrupting. I mean, not that you didn't have the interruptions in regular remand court, but there was a formality to it. There was, you know, a, a solemnity to it that, that I think is missing on the video screen. And I think that's important, right? Because it is, you know, as, as much as we don't think it is that it's an important part of the criminal process. It's an important part of the criminal trial process, right? Neha? Great cases are won and lost in remand court. And there's so much good that can be done in a remand court. Um, it is so unfortunate, uh, the informality and the lack of solemnity. I agree with you. Um, even doing a Zoom trial, I recently did a Zoom trial um, where the witness was... Um, swearing at me and uh, yelling at the crown and would uh, turn off her phone. And the judge attributed that. She said, I'm going to attribute that to, you know, lack of service or um, the fact that your internet shut down. But I think we all knew that she was just storming out. That's not something that would have gone over well in front of a jury or um, in a courtroom where you have that long walk from the witness box to the door. Um, you can't just storm out of a courtroom without there being more huff and puff. Um, but I agree it's, uh, uh, remand is a remand court is a great place, uh, to learn how to be a lawyer and to be a lawyer. And it always reminds me of those early days of practice. I, I don't mind going into remand court now physically when I'm in court, because it reminds me of, of when I first started. And I get nostalgic about those early days. Neha, do you, do you ever get nostalgic about those early days of practice? And Oh, yeah. You know, when you get your first five clients or your first um, case and you're laying the framework for how that case is going to play out in court, um, everything from who your crown's going to be and uh, who's going to JPT it, that, uh, um, that is uh, a really exciting process. And I, I am so, I do miss those first years of practice in Ottawa. I remember buying my first suits and uh, getting out there, meeting people. Um, I was sitting in remand court, uh, completely lost and doe-eyed. Ottawa has this process. It's like A to Z on even days. Lawyers call their list um, A to Z on even days and on odd days. So if it's the 11th of the month, the alphabet goes Z to A. So nobody except Ottawa lawyers knows what that means. Um, and I was completely confused and uh, sitting there doe-eyed. My, and my now best friend, Anne-Marie McElroy, um, saw me completely confused. And uh, she took me out for a coffee at the Tim Hortons. And she, she laid it all out for me. And uh, um, it was a, it's a friendship that has uh, uh, withstood... Uh, pregnancies and practice changes and um, lifestyle changes. But having that first friend early on, we've gone through um, uh, our, uh, our war stories together, our battles together. What about you, Paulo? Well, I mean, going back to that Ottawa system that Nea was talking about, that's when I, you know, had the brilliant idea of opening up a law firm and calling it Aardvark Law. 
so I can go first <laughs> on even days, you know. Um, but then you're last on odd number days. Yeah, you just put everything on even days. That's 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 the that's the practice. That's the secret. <laughs> so I, I mean, going back to the original question about you know the early days, you know, absolutely. I mean, I um, I look back on the early days and I reminisce about the early days. And what I loved about the early days was this: is that you're in a position where you're fresh out of law school. You have no idea what the hell you're doing. You have no idea how to run a criminal trial. You have no idea how to do things. And in criminal, I find the first few years are about learning the practice and, and finding ways to learn about the practice other than just running your own matters. And that's where the social aspect comes in that I think is really important. Right? So, you know, what I liked about those early days was not having the pressure of, because this is a business. We know law is a business, right? And and you're excused from worrying about that business aspect of law in your first few years so that you can get that knowledge and that ability to run trials and to deal with clients and to deal with difficult situations. And you do that by being there. You do that by being present, not worrying about your dockets, by talking to others, talking to senior counsel, talking to, you know, you, you know, people of your same vintage, right. And, and trading war stories and the social aspect, right. Which I think is really, really important to developing an all round practice of law. So I really, really miss that more relaxed social and learning aspect of the early time of, you know, of your practice. And just to, to that point, how do you wreck when having that that social element especially in those early days how does that impact on your abilities to for instance cope with a difficult loss oh i mean it's 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 important to have i think that that peer network in criminal law right where you can openly talk with your friends about your practice and what's going on and strategy and dealing with difficult situations. Because I think we can all agree, all of us who practice criminal law is that it's not easy, right? We're, we're, we're not looked upon favorably oftentimes in society, right? We deal with uh, people who are not looked upon favorably in society, but we take on their cases and we want what's best for our clients. We act in the interests of these people who aren't viewed favorably in society. And, you know, when, when we take losses, I mean, it affects us. I mean, you know, whether you have an ego or you don't, you always try to do the best that you can for your clients. And when you lose, it sucks. We all know that we've been there. Um, we always think, could I have done something differently? Um, did I make a mistake here? How, how, you know, how could I have screwed this up? Right. Um, it's, really important I think to have that network where you can talk to people openly without judgment and you know um, learn from either mistakes or learn how to deal with these pressure situations going forward so that you're in a better position to not second guess yourself but have confidence in what you're doing and Neha how do you cope with those those difficult times I think that um, if I can be if I can share um, from my personal story one of the hardest times in my life was when I had to move my practice to Cornwall um it was a very very lonely time in my life 
as I mentioned, I was, I was pregnant with our second, um, and I was moving my practice to an area where there were, um, there was one woman who practiced a little bit of criminal defense, but there were really no females in criminal defense law. And there was no one who looked like me, a uh, person of color. And, uh, I was very lonely and, uh, I was also, um, completely broke. <laughs> and I'd say that some of the hardest days were, you know, leaving a courtroom uh, at four four thirty, 30, um, after running, you know, a terrible bail hearing and, you know, sitting in a drive through praying your car doesn't run out of gas and that you have money on your debit card so you can buy yourself, you know, whatever you're uh, inhaling at the drive through because you haven't eaten all day. And uh, those were really, really hard times. And I look back on it now with, you know, I'm a mom with a mortgage and, you know, a minivan and a, a station wagon and times have really changed. We have a law firm now and the finances are a lot better at the office. And uh, um, I look back on it now with absolute nostalgia and um, things were so much easier back then when I had one client up per day and uh, my biggest issue was uh, what's the difference between a 523 and a 524? How do I manage that? Uh, where do I go from here? Um, what is the crown talking about? And uh, am I going to make it uh, to my kid's daycare in time uh, before I, I get the, the cold and evil look from the daycare provider? Now I have to deal with um, bigger issues with managing a firm and managing, you know, four associates who are um, managing their own issues in court, um, managing money. That's, that's hard. Managing a business is hard and they don't teach you that in law school um, or during your articles or uh, in the bar. They don't teach you any of that. And so I look back on those really hard and dark, dark times when I started my practice with, with nostalgia. So how do you get excited or what still excites you about the practice of criminal law now, Neha? I love, I love that moment when a jury walks in with their decision and the Crown and Defense are both kind of looking over, trying to make eye contact. Is the jury looking over at me? Um, I love that moment of anticipation. Um, I, love the, I love doing JPTs. I love laying it all on the table uh, with a judge. And that moment of contemplation that the judge has when you're kind of waiting to see where their their head is at, and uh, I just I love that that sweet anticipation of the next step. I think that's uh, um, uh, a really really uh, interesting uh, uh, time. Um, I've had to really um, my 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 younger associates have uh, really talked me into turning my phone off at night because I used to love getting middle of the night calls from usually from drunks and uh, just talking to them for 15, 20 minutes, getting their names, getting their particulars, seeing if they remembered me in the morning. Um, I really looked forward to, to that. I, I really live, breathe and um, walk the walk as a defense lawyer. I um, love every moment of it. And I um, I'm just feel so grateful that I get to uh, have that identity. It's a really, a really poignant answer. Paulo, same question. What still excites you about 
this practice? It probably doesn't surprise you, but uh, I'm a very hyperactive and scatterbrained person. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that he sees a squirrel. You know, I'm going to call the squirrel out as it's running by. Uh, what I love about the practice of law is uh, it's almost like being an air traffic control person for me in terms of organizing clients, organizing files, you know, preparing for CPTs, JPT, just, just the hustle and bustle of the everyday practice that just keeps my mind going from sunup to sundown and, and even past that for whatever reason. I mean, a lot of people would hate it. I, I, I love it because it keeps my mind going and it keeps me satisfied. It's, and it's sad to say, but I, you know, as, as much as, you know, my wife hates it, that my mind is always on my practice. I, I, I like that aspect of it. I mean, it also has its, its, uh, its disadvantages, right? Where you have to try and turn it off for a week or so. And, you know, and then you're, you're constantly thinking about it, but, um, that's, that's what I love about the law. And, and I love that every day is just different. Every day is different. You know, what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to go on, but you're just going to deal with it. Paulo, tell me about a lawyer that you have had the privilege of experiencing litigate or observing litigate um, over the course of your career. I, I think the one that sticks out of my uh, sticks out in my mind, excuse me, um, would have to be Don Bain. Um, and Don Bain is a, is a giant of the defense bar, for those who know him. Um, he um, uh, defended uh, Mike Duffy um, uh, on his criminal charges. And um, I had the benefit of being able um, uh, to watch uh, him conduct a number of days of that trial. Um, it was a fairly lengthy trial. Um, and... If there's one word to can des can describe, I, I was in awe. I was in awe of his presence. I was in awe of his obvious preparation and knowledge and grasp of the facts. But what I was most impressed with with um, was how he conducted himself in the trial and the ease with which he just operated, and everything just seemed to come you know, naturally to him in terms of dealing with the witnesses and cross-examining witnesses and commanding the attention of the audience and the trier of fact and developing a relationship with the trier of fact um, and commanding the respect of the trier of fact. I've never seen anything like it in terms of uh, lawyers that I've been able to watch and 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 learn from, and it was just a, an an amazing experience to see him conduct that trial. And um, I was lucky to, you know, and and I know a lot of the junior lawyers in Ottawa were were lucky to do so. And the rest of us were just watching it on the news, so that was a it, it, yeah. And 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 um, you know, it, the news, as we all know, doesn't do justice to the way that a defense lawyer conducts their practice within the courtroom. And again, just to, just to, to watch him was just to say, you know what, that's how I want to be. And that's how I want to, I want to run a trial. Neha, same question. Is there a lawyer that you feel that you've been privileged to see in action throughout your career? When I was in law school, I uh, did the criminal law intensive 
with uh, now Justice James Stravopoulos. And uh, we, I was with the Toronto Crown's office and I had the distinct privilege of watching um, Aston Hall, now Justice Aston Hall, as a defense lawyer. Associate uh, Chief Justice Aston Hall. He's also the Chief Justice, uh, yes. Um, he was defense counsel on a murder trial. The name of the murder trial was Hendessa. It was an unpopular set of facts. It was an unpopular case. It was a very sympathetic set of facts um, for the Crown. And um, it was me, Justice Hall, and the accused person. We were the three people of color in the courtroom. And uh, it was the first time as a defense counsel potential person um, with stars in my eyes that I looked at defense counsel and I thought to myself, I belong here. There's space for me here. But just watching Justice Hall, he was charismatic. He was um, earnest. He was kind. Um, he handles, handled his objections with, um, with class and with courage. Um, he was, uh, to sum it up, he was a class act. And I'm sure he still is. I haven't had the privilege of appearing in front of him, but I'm sure he still is. I don't it think would, anybody would disagree with that characterization of him also as a judge, but um, few of us who had the benefit of seeing him um, as counsel would probably agree with that characterization as well. Um, yeah, not, to, not to mention one of the greatest names a lawyer could ever have, <laughs> in my opinion. It's a great name for a lawyer. Um <laughs> Paulo Giancaterino and Neha Chug, I'd like to thank you both for joining me in the garage. Um, continuing legal education is something that comes in various different forms. And in, in my opinion, this is one of those types of situations where we can learn from one another and learn about our experience through our experiences uh, in the criminal bar. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, before we go, is there, Neha, is there something you'd like to plug? for our listeners yeah keep your eyes open for all of the good work that's coming out of the law commission of ontario a lot of great research coming out on um, artificial intelligence and its impact on the criminal justice system and the justice system broadly um, it's led by nye thomas um, and uh, he's doing great work and his uh, researchers are doing great work um, and i'm really proud to sit on the board of governors and to see uh, the work that uh, they're producing. So yeah, the Law Commission of Ontario. Great, Paulo. You can find me at uh, lmslawyers.com um, at Juventus1897 uh, on Twitter and uh, Paulo Chiliseo on, uh, on Facebook. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>